His name is Elihu, and he is very self-indulged, let me tell you. Anyway, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembry. And I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV, taking you through the Bible. Job 36 today, that's what we study in today's passage. It is interesting. In five minutes, we're going to talk about this Elihu character and what he says about God. Very fascinating. Corey is here. Corey? Today, I'm going to be looking at ancient bread, but specifically artistic ancient bread. More on that later, Ryan. Today, I'm focusing on a passage in Job that might, just might, refer to the Ice Age. So it's going to be a good one. Very good. And Corey, I like how you make your artistic cookies and all that mm, stuff. That's really you. good. And cakes <laughs> and all that. Yes. Okay, Janice. <laughs> Today, the words of my mouth. Very good. So let's open up the words of the book, the Bible, most important book of all, and let's listen to what God is saying to us. Job 36, 1 through 14. Elihu also proceeded and said, Bear with me a little, and I will show you that there are yet words to speak on God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe righteousness to my Maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Behold, God is mighty, but despises no one. He is mighty in strength of understanding." He does not preserve the life of the wicked, but gives justice to the oppressed. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but they are on the throne with kings, for he has seated them forever and they are exalted. And if they are bound in fetters, held in the cords of affliction, then he tells them their work and their transgressions that they have acted defiantly. He also opens their ear to instruction and commands that they turn from iniquity. If they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. But if they do not obey, they shall perish by the sword and they shall die without knowledge. But the hypocrites in heart store up wrath. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth, and their life ends among the perverted persons. Job chapter 36, verses 1 through 14. Job chapter 33, chapter 34, chapter 35, and chapter 36. We're going to talk about a man named Elihu. You know, in this world, there are many who claim to speak on behalf of God. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 3, however, God speaks about these kind of people who pretend or even think they know who God is, but they do not. And like their bow, they have bent their tongue for lies. They are not valiant for the truth on earth, for they proceed from evil to evil. They do not know me, says the Lord. Well, Elihu was the younger of the men who thought to speak for the Lord. But his tongue was bent on lies. This young man waited to speak after others could not answer Job's questions. I mean, Elihu felt that 
He had all the answers about God and Job's situation. But if God is the God of everything, can he not speak for himself? Think about that. In fact, right after Elihu speaks, God chimes in and completely ignores Elihu. Elihu was not even worth acknowledging, not even at the end when he judges, God judges his friends. God does speak through people such as his prophets, but when it comes to having the final word, God will speak for himself as he has in his word. Now, that's very important. We need to think about that as we continue to read the Bible. And let me tell you, if you've chosen to go through the Bible with us, congratulations. You're listening to the words of the Holy Spirit as you read the most important book of all times, the Word of God. It becomes very critical for us to understand that. And today, take your Bible guide and turn to it. It takes us to the page where we talk about God speaking. And we're going to study Job chapter 36, 1 to 14. And let's pray and ask the Lord to show his way and teach his path to us. Father, I pray today as we humble ourselves to listen to you, as we attempt to listen to the words of the Bible. A lot of people are arguing about it. A lot of people are talking about it. But Father, we believe that it's your word. And this is a translation of your word. But we believe, Lord, that your Holy Spirit is in our hearts. And if we are born again, your Holy Spirit will direct your words on how to speak to us from you. Thank you, Lord, and help us today. In the name of Jesus Christ, and we said together, amen. Now, let's look at this because this gets important. Here's what God says to us in Job chapter 36, 1 to 4, verse 1. Elihu also proceeded and said, this is Elihu, bear with me a little and I will show you that there are yet words to speak on God's behalf. Really? There are words to speak on God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe righteousness to my maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. I'm telling you, this guy is arrogant, arrogant, arrogant. He's incredible. Elihu claims to know all the answers to God's mysterious ways. There are times when our arrogance is obvious and we would do well to stop talking. <laughs> I mean, there are many times when we talk just to fill the air. And you know, there's that we learned that in media, in television. I mean, the worst thing you can do on television is dead air. dead air. <laughs> See what I mean? It's, it's, it's terrible. But God, when he speaks, we need to listen. We don't need to talk. We need to hear him. And this guy, Elihu, he's all into himself and I can speak on God's behalf and all that. Well, let's read on. Job chapter 36, verse five says, behold, God is mighty, but despises no one. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not preserve the life of the wicked, but gives justice to the oppressed. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but they are on the throne with kings, for he has seated them forever, and they are exalted. And if they are bound in fetters, held in cords of affliction, then he tells them their work and their transgressions, that they may have acted defiantly. 
He also opens their ears to instruction and commands that they turn from iniquity. Now, this is interesting, but, you know, it it doesn't really tell us much about Job's problem, does it? Elihu continues to speak about God's character. And beloved, we need to understand, we demean others by assuming they do not know the character of God. We demean others by assuming they do not know the character of God. Instead, we need to tell others the truth about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is fully God. Jesus Christ is fully man. I don't know. I can't explain it technically, but the Bible tells us that. John chapter 1 is clear on that, and we'll study that. We're coming up on that in September. So it's important for us to remember, beloved, that we need to pay attention. We need to understand, not just mouth off all the time. Isn't that something? Also, we learn something else from the book of Job, chapter 36, beginning with verse 11. If they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. But if they do not obey, they shall perish by the sword and they shall die without knowledge. But the hypocrites in heart store up wrath. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth and their life ends among the perverted persons. Now listen carefully. Elihu claims to know how evil people will die in disgrace. He claims to know that. The punishment for evil is not justified in this life, but in the next. Now, remember that Elihu says this, but what he says is really not true because there are times when God tests us, times when suffering is allowed to come into our lives, times when we do not have a good thing happening, but our spirits always have the eternal life and a good thing happening. So our spirit is to lead us, not our feelings, not our body. And Job explains at the end, this is what happened to him. And God blessed him even more. So Elihu clearly does not understand what God is doing. And there are so many times when we come to this and in this culture today, youth culture with television, internet and everything, and we worship youth. But let's keep in mind, I had nothing wrong with enjoying youth. But let me remind you that you don't just kill old people. I'm an old person. You don't just kill us. We've learned some things through scripture. We figured out some things and we would like to impart them. You don't have to listen to us, but it'd be worth imparting them. And if you're somebody who's young, my advice to you would be look at some older folks who've been through the Bible and been through life with God. That's God experience. Not just life experience, God experience. Remember that when we look at people, we have to understand, do they have experience with the Lord? Because that's critical right now. In the world in which we live, we have to be experienced with God. Beloved, that's what we need to learn. This is one of the aspects of Job's suffering that he brings to the front. One of the things that we learn when we hear about God. Now, he's going to come up on the end of Job, and we're going to see this all bear out in just a day or two. But a lie is when somebody tells you, I know how you'll be happy. You buy this hairspray and you're going to be happy. You smell like this flower, you're going to be happy. You take this drug, you're going to be happy. You buy this car, you're going to be happy. See, it all tells me I'm going to 
be happy. No, I'm not. That's not how this works. The truth is that I am not happy until I find the purpose of why I exist. My purpose for living. All right, well, it's time now to carry on with our Bible study. And I'm really excited about my report today because it revolves around Job chapter 38, verses 29 and 30, which just might be a reference to the Ice Age. And the language the author uses is very interesting. But whether these verses are referring to the Ice Age or not, the events recorded in the book of Job are almost certainly contemporary with this great freeze. Now, generally speaking, if you ask a scientist who rejects or ignores the early history of the Bible in Genesis 1 to 11, and in particular, the Genesis flood, he or she will tell you that there were many ice ages over many millions of years. Now, on the other hand, a scientist who fully accepts and embraces the early history in the Bible will tell you that there was only one ice age that lasted less than 1,000 years. And although the Bible never directly mentions the Ice Age, it does give us key events that help us to extrapolate, like Noah's Flood. Check it out. Out of the Bible's 66 books, Job has some particularly unique features. For example, apart from Genesis 1-11, it is probably the Bible's oldest book. It also contains more references to creation, the flood, and other primeval events than any other book of the Bible except Genesis, and also seems to contain more modern scientific insights than any other book of the Bible. Some scholars and scientists even think it may contain a reference to the Ice Age. It is true that Job has more mentions of snow, ice, and cold than any of the other biblical books. For instance, in what could be an allusion to the Ice Age, Job chapter 38 verses 29 and 30 says, From whose womb comes the ice, and the frost of heaven, who gives it birth? The waters harden like stone, and the surface of the deep is frozen. As Dr. Henry Morris commented, this unusual picture of a sheet of ice slowly coming forward, as if emerging from a womb, may well refer to the ice sheet of the Great Ice Age that covered the northern latitudes for many centuries following the flood. Whether this be a reference to the Ice Age or not, the events recorded in this book would have been almost certainly contemporaneous with this Great Freeze. Although most secular scientists believe that there have been 30 or more Ice Ages over many millions of years, early biblical history provides a very different and more satisfactory view. One reason for this is because while mainstream science has no viable starting mechanism to explain even one Ice Age, let alone 30, the Bible does. As meteorologist Michael Ord points out, to cause an Ice Age, rare conditions are required. Warm oceans for high precipitation and cool summers for lack of melting the snow. Interestingly, as Henry Morris already alluded to, the climactic conditions following the Genesis Flood provided these exact conditions. For instance, during the deluge there were underwater volcanic eruptions, as indicated by the bursting forth of the fountains of the Great Deep in Genesis chapter 7 verse 11. As the crust of the earth broke open, hot water and lava released into the oceans, making the post-flood ocean waters warm from pole to pole. On top of this, for several years after the flood, there would have been large amounts of volcanic activity, sending dust and debris into the atmosphere. These volcanic particles would reflect some of the sun's light back into space, causing cooler summers. 
As far as the length of this biblical ice age is concerned, according to the best estimates, it would have reached its peak 500 years after the flood and would have fully melted 200 years later, making it a total of 700 years. If so, it means the Ice Age lasted from roughly 2350 to 1650 BC. Interestingly, many scholars date Job's life to within this very time span. While this doesn't automatically mean that Job 38, 29, and 30 is a reference to the Ice Age, the timing does at least make it conceivable. So, the global flood seems to be the mechanism that kickstarted the Ice Age, and as Michael Ord pointed out, Warmer oceans and cooler summers are a recipe for ice buildup. But just so there's no confusion, I wanted to make it clear that the ice sheets that formed during the Ice Age didn't cover the entire globe. And that may be the reason why the Ice Age is never directly mentioned in the Bible. The Scandinavian ice sheet and mountain ice caps were farther north than the region where the Bible was written. Only an increase in the snow coverage of Mount Hermon and possibly more frequent snowfalls on the high areas of the Middle East would have been evident to those living in Israel. It's the same with Job. While it's true that Job didn't live in the northern latitudes where the ice sheets formed, it's still possible that during the winters he observed lake ice and frost, especially if temperatures were lower because of the ice age. You know, one of the things that uh, I, I find fascinating is everybody is, is talking about the weather these days and the shifts in the weather and all that. The meteorologists are all talking. What would it be like to be a meteorologist during the time of the flood? <laughs> That would have been a major shift, I'll tell you. Major shift, for and sure. I, I don't know which one of Noah's sons would have been the meteorologist, but uh, <laughs> it was really, really something. Thank you, Ryan. Very All good. Right. All right, Corey. All right. Well, I promised some artistic bread. I am going to deliver some artistic bread. We are taking a look not, not at the physical act of making just a loaf of bread in the ancient world, but rather... Uh, the bread stamps that were utilized and the bread molds that were utilized to make shapes of bread. Uh, why, for what purpose, how? Take a look. It's been estimated that bread and cereal grains made up as much as 50% of the diet of ancient Israelites. It's no wonder then that bread came in all different shapes and sizes. The ancients didn't just stop at shaping and molding bread. They also made stamps to impress their loaves and cakes. Clay, stone, or metal stamps were utilized elsewhere in everyday life. Signet and cylinder seals were taken as a person's official signature. Clay jars were stamped for administrative, storage, and economic purposes. And bricks and tiles could be stamped for the glory of their commissioning king. Ancient bread stamping is known to us from literary texts, artistic representations, the physical stamps themselves, and even in the famous case of the city of Pompeii, a preserved loaf. In the Pompeii loaf's case, the round bread was divided into wedges, tied about with a piece of rope that would have made a convenient carrying string, and stamped with the name of the baker. This demonstrates for us a couple of the basic reasons for ancient stamping. One, it could identify the bakery and thus be good for publicity and accountability. And two, in some Roman cities, it was common for people to bring their prepared raw loaves to a bakery equipped with bread ovens. A family stamp would ensure they got their appropriate loaves back. This practice of bread stamping goes back farther in time than the Roman period. As far back as the Neolithic age, archaeologists have found evidence of it. Again, there was more than one reason to stamp a loaf. It could be done purely for the sake of decoration, adding beauty to what was otherwise a laborious task. 
It could also be done superstitiously, stamping on messages of health, protection, and petitions to various gods. In this same vein, stamped bread was often used religiously. Special cakes and loaves would be stamped with the name of gods and goddesses, sometimes first forming them into the shape of a more expensive offering, like an animal, and then stamped. This ritualistic bread would often be blessed by the pagan priests and distributed to the revelers to enjoy. This brings us to stamped Jewish and Christian bread. In Judaism, stamped bread had an added benefit of labeling it kosher, and the practice of stamping special bread for biblical festivals may have been adopted. In Eastern and Greek Orthodox Christianity, bread stamping is still a part of the Eucharist. This practice may have developed quite naturally in the early church. By the second century, it was common practice for the body of believers in a city to receive bread given to them by the area's bishop for a weekly communion. In a world where there was no common church building, this shared bread represented the unity of believers within their diversity. Since the practice of stamping bread was thoroughly entrenched in Roman society, it wouldn't have taken a huge leap for someone to start stamping this shared bread to mark out its special importance, all the more so because it held a unique religious value. So I think this is really interesting. I mean, as humans, we have this, this you know, urge to create and to create things in ways that haven't been done before. And we see this used in good ways and in bad ways today and in the past. And so it was with bread and the molding of bread. It could be used in idolatrous practices, but it could also be used very practically just to label your bread to make sure that you're, or, or as advertisement for your bakery in the ancient world. And it could, it was also utilized by Christians to help them remember uh, that, you know, the Eucharist, the, the Lord's Supper. So uh, kind of all over the map there, but it's an interesting study. It is. And it's not like today because today, like bread is mass produced and yeah. everything like that. So you kind of lose the personal aspect of it. But in the ancient times, actually just about 200 years ago, it wasn't mass produced. And so that was, I mean, a bakery would identify itself that way. And if they were Christian bakery, mm -hmm. they would do things. And that's excellent. Very good. Jan? Growing up, Sundays were a very special day because I grew up in Sudbury. And those of you from Sudbury, North, Ontario, Sudbury, Ontario, that's right. And those of you that grew up there would know that Golden Grain Bakery, oh my goodness, that was the stop on the way home from church. And we would get a loaf of bread and uh, mm, memories. <laughs> I have to focus now. Focus. Yeah. This is the words of my mouth, not the bread that I would like to be putting in it right now. <laughs> Fair but, enough. Right? Um, Elihu here in this chapter claims to have the flawless mind of God. He says that he has perfect knowledge. And, you know, looking back on some of my discussions that I have had before, I kind of come across like maybe I do have this attitude that I have a flawless mind or that I have perfect knowledge. And, of course, we all know that none of us do. We should not have that kind of an attitude. Uh, what I, I was reminded of um, as I read this portion, because he says right off the top, bear with me a little and I will show you that there are yet words to speak on God's behalf. Remember, everybody had spoken to Job and Job did too. And now it was Elihu's turn. He says, I will teach mine or I will fetch my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe righteousness to my maker for truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Wow. 
That's really quite something. When I read that, it reminded me of a Psalm of David. It's Psalm 19, and we're going to be going into the Psalms in just a few short days. And um, I love Psalm 19. It's it's one that you would be able to read at home. It's talking about the revelation of the Lord. And back down into verse 12, David Well, you know what? I have time. I'm going to start at verse 7. David writes, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Then David switches. Now listen to this, to where David's heart was at. This is where Elihu and where we need to make sure that our hearts are aligned with God and God's word. Who can understand his errors, David says? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant, God, also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. David is pouring himself into God, making sure that his life stays pliable to the way God has called him to live, the way God has purposed him to live. Then this verse is what I was reminded of as I was reading Elihu's flawless mind theory of himself. Here's what David wrote. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. It is so important that we understand who God is and who we are in Him. That our thoughts and what's in our hearts needs to be aligned with Him. We are not, we do not have the mind, our flawless knowledge that God does. But we need to get into his word and learn from him and be moldable. I remember my grandma, Rod, sometimes she would say to my my papa, idle words, Roy, (laughs) idle words, and we will be accountable. You read that in Matthew chapter 12. We are accountable for our words. Well, you can get us on your iPhone. You can get us on your Android. That's great. You just go to the stores and click in Bible Discovery and we will come up. And we have our uh, applications there and they're free of charge. And we recommend that you get a hold of that so you never miss a program. Well, today we're going to close in prayer. And as we do, think about this. Lord, 
I give everything, and I mean everything, past, present, future, everything to you. Help me, Father, today. Amen.